millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name is Stephanie Boland and this week we're joined by Dan Hancock to talk about the surprisingly complex politics of bread. First though, I'm joined here in the heart of Westminster by Rebecca Liu, who's making her Prospect podcast debut. Rebecca, hello. Hi, I'm feeling very shy. (laughs) Did you have bread in the house growing up? What was the the regulation around types of bread with your family? Um, Absolutely, we did have lots of bread growing up. Um, My parents weren't really particular at all. Um, So it was just your standard kind of white bread in those packets um yeah yeah and kind of just had them with Nutella a lot um (laughs) but no they were they were not um you know what what some might call food snobs in in any measure so kind of cheap cheap white crust was good for us was that when you were living in the states uh no in New Zealand in New Zealand yeah okay because there's obviously an international bread resonance which yes. <laughs> is, a, is a whole other thing yes I met a French person um three months ago and when he heard sort of my slight American accent he just um immediately went in and just said your bread is terrible uh, and I, <laughs> I, I I just met him as well that was his first topic of conversation did you feel personally responsible for the, the food culture um, of an entire no major western power no No, i I didn't take that conversation very far (laughs) i mean this is already so interesting and the thing i found really interesting about um dan's piece about bread which we'll be talking about a little bit later on is how much it speaks to that primacy of food i know Mm. my bread situation growing up as it were moved from sliced white when I was little my parents had me very young and and we were on benefits and quite poor for a while and then as we ascended up the social ladder Mm. we swapped to to whole whole meal the kind of healthy middle class bread so (laughs) it it hit very close to home for me and but there is something about food isn't there that feels so personal I know we ran a piece on the prospect website this week about the Aperol spritz Mm -hmm. which has upset some people a little more than I thought it might. Yeah, I think it's hard because, you know, there there are obviously lots of politics behind food, but because it's seen as a very personal thing, you know, it's, it's not quite an abstract conversation. Um, and that reminds me of if I, you know, my vegan friends actually have quite a hard time sometimes socializing because once they say they're a vegan, immediately it kind of invites other people to 
at least be really weird about something that has nothing to do with how they eat. Yeah, and this yeah. happens, so I'm a vegetarian, and often people who do eat meat will, will think I must be thinking something bad about mm. them, and I'm not at all, mm. but that idea of um, judgment and morality being so tied to food is, mm-hmm. is quite potent. Mm-hmm. I know this piece we ran um, was by an author based in Italy, and she was talking about the Aperol Spritz, which mm. if our listeners are based in any big city in the UK, you'll have probably seen this summer, so it's an orange bitter aperitif with Prosecco and soda water, it's quite a nice fancy summertime drink um but as it's become more and more popular in london italian bars have started marketing it to tourists it used to be a very cheap drink in italy that you'd have kind of with some nibbles as a a social moment after work and now they're getting pricier and pricier so it's this international story about what kind of food is popular and what knock-on effect it has um and some people really enjoyed it but other people i think felt very much like what was a a a nice treat that they they had and enjoyed and was marketed to them was Mm. being Mm. implicated in um this really negative moment and it was interesting and good to get that reminder of how much food does matter yeah yeah and I think a reminder as well that you can enjoy things but also you know see that they might play into broader structures that may do harm like the one thing that I think really I took from that piece was sort of how the Aperol Spritz was part of this broader conversation about, you know, the aestheticization of food, the kind of how food can be quite trendy um, to young millennial city dwellers in a way that might rid local places of their actual character. Yeah, and it's, I guess, nobody's particular enjoyment of food is necessarily more valid or less valid, and you can but still think about those forces, like you say. Um, Which brings us nicely onto bread, which is an everyday staple that, that similarly tells us so much about all sorts of things, actually. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
listening to the Prospect Podcast, and I'm here with Dan Hancock, who's written for us about bread. Hello, Dan. Hi, how's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm okay. I, I haven't had any bread today. I feel ill-prepared. <laughs> well, I mean, not to start immediately by plugging your book, but you are known as a writer who writes about music, about gentrification, in particular your most recent book, Inner City Pressure, which is all about grime. Bread might seem like a slightly disparate topic from that. Tell us a little bit about what made you so interested in this. Um, well, I suppose I've always had an interest in food for purely gluttonous reasons. Um, and as a, I mean, as a freelance writer, I've slowly absorbed my interests into my writing life. And so <laughs> I think that's sort of what's happened here. But I'm sort of tried to approach a subject that's very new for me with um, uh, a sort of similar angle and context which is I'm interested in the sort of socio-economics and the politics of the things that we take for granted and sort of exist in our everyday lives and so for a long time that was music and I wrote a book about grime in which the politics and society and um, kind of broader kind of pop culture that existed uh, in the in the sort of 2000s when grime was emerging were as, as important as the you know actual sonics of how the music sounded and I suppose I, I have a similar interest in in food um, bread is a universally kind of I mean as we'll discuss it's it's something that everyone has an opinion on um, often quite a strident opinion um, sometimes conflicted opinions um, and that's because it is the ultimate staple um, really for for the vast majority of the world um and so people bring their kind of that energy of sort of their polit their politics and their their background class comes up time and time again um to to some of the most humble of foodstuffs you know the, the thing that's that's always sort of first on the shopping list that's so interesting isn't it and so, so often the case with conversations about food that it's the everydayness and the primacy of food that gives it this emotional and, and like you say political charge um, I mean, talk us through, in very general terms, what this split is in the bread world, because it's a lot more dramatic than people might suppose. Yeah, or even that I'd realised until I started investigating it uh, more deeply. But but no, there is a really sort of striking uh, gulf, particularly in Britain, and maybe we'll come on to this later, but actually it's not so much the case in, in a lot of other countries. But in Britain we have... Um, you know, a, a really uh, flourishing artisan bread movement um, with really skilled craftspeople creating these beautiful, often quite expensive loaves using, you know, only the very best ingredients and a sourdough starter, which is this sort of fermented mulch, um, for want of a better <laughs> term, that's a scientific term, um, to to create, you know, re really delicious loaves that usually cost about five quid each in uh, in. It, you know, when you buy them from a shop, maybe four if you're lucky. Um, on and so and so that's been flourishing in the last few years, and I think flourishing in part because partly because our food culture is becoming gradually embourgeoisified, um, uh, and partly because as a, sort of as a response to the fact that mostly most what's available in supermarkets is cheap. Um, and I don't want to use pejoratives here, but a lot of because I, I have very conflicted feelings myself about these different types of bread. But I think for a lot of people is, you know, cotton wool kind of pap. It's sort of it's tasteless. It's, um, you know, and it's sort of lacking the character and and depth and 
you know, deliciousness and flavour ultimately, um, and can cost as little as thirty six p. As I as I discovered uh, checking the prices um, from Lidl, Aldi. Clearly, there's a price war there with with a lot of the the big the big chains. Um, so yeah, the divide is is over price, but it's also it's so wrapped up with identity as well and sort of how we think about ourselves and what we like to think of are our priorities when it comes to feeding ourselves and our families. Let's break down a little bit what the actual difference is between those those two types of bread that you mm. talked about there because I know, for instance, people who are bakers or who teach baking will say bread should just be flour, water and natural yeast mm-hmm. and maybe a bit of salt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it's often sort of I guess putting the salt aside that you know they say three ingredients basically and anything more than that and you haven't got bread in in, in for some of the more kind of hardcore <laughs> kind of uh, activists in this world um anything that involves preservatives vinegar additives vitamin fortification etc um that that is creating the supermarket loaf which um, let's go back in time a bit. So, so the, there was a crucial breakthrough in the history of bread making in the world, but it happened in this country. It happened in Chorleywood, a tiny little town, um, in 1961, where the, the British Baking Industries Research Association had been working after the war on fortifying bread and making it more, uh, giving you know, giving the sort of perhaps undernourished sort of post-war population following the rationing period, um, you know, more of the vitamins. Um, that they needed and so they've been conducting various experiments the big breakthrough in 1961 um, became known as the Chorleywood process Um, in the industry they refer to Chorleywood loaves even to this day Um, and that that revolution created a loaf that was um, it's a key difference is time It it takes maybe a couple of hours to produce a loaf from start to finish you're not leaving it to rise for ages you're not um kneading it several times uh, it's the industrialization um uh, for mass production of of bread essentially is 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 what that um great leap forwards or backwards depending on your view um <laughs> involved um and so the sort of the rise of the artisan bread movement in recent years is an attempt to get back to basics uh to the loaves that were sort of eaten throughout history um and actually if you go back even further if you go back to the 19th century the loaves that we ate every day then were usually a minimum of about two kilos which is extraordinary if you think of like an average supermarket loaf is 800 grams these things were massive and they because it, this was our staple this is where we got most of our calorie intake for the day um, obviously, people were more likely to be doing uh, manual labor and stuff that burned more calories and needed that. Um, and yeah, there's an attempt to go back to basics, but also refine uh, sort of something in, into into an art form, essentially. And that's, I suppose, the justification for charging five quid. You know, these, these ingredients are top line. It's interesting because even in just what you were saying then, we might want to talk about the Michael Pollan documentary on on bread, which is sort of a, a key cultural artifact in the recent history of, of sourdough bread. <laughs> um, but that idea of health and cost mm. being so tied together... Um, I think he says in that documentary that you can technically survive just on sourdough bread um, if if you wanted to, which sounds extraordinary, but, you you know, this, it's the staple food. Mm. But then you went very quickly there from talking about fortifying bread in the post-war moment mm. and increasing productivity and those things has been really tied together. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right, yeah. And, and 
and that's what allowed the cost to come down obviously like um to now though sort of ridiculous ridiculously sort of low prices and that speaks a you know uh to that speaks to sort of the way that supermarkets um dictate a great deal of of our food culture today and that that goes to the top end and the bottom end in the sense that you know you've got waitrose um buying artisan sourdough and charging an arm and a leg for it um from the one of the bakers that i visited celtic bakers which is based in north london and they um Celtic Baker's a very interesting example of, of sort of how this tension is not resolved, but kind of, you know, born into something new. They've attempted to scale up the artisan bread making process. So if you think of an artisan craft person of any kind, you're imagining probably two or three people in a tiny little workshop. Um, that's certainly what the word sort of meant originally. Um, and so, I mean, it was the question that prospects deputy editor steve bloomfield asked asked me to go go and look into which i thought was a really perspicacious one was is there anybody trying to do this at scale because if people love sourdough bread then surely increasing the you know scope of these operations um could bring down the price and make it you know make delicious bread for all is that the utopian dream and is that realizable is anyone trying to do that is there some technological breakthrough that could allow this to happen and the answer to that after much research and consultation with the experts is no there isn't some sort of magic key to sort of making that possible but there is uh, well celtic bakers are a good example of um of a company who are pushing at the limit of what you can do and keep that skill and keep that um because ultimately it takes time and it takes expertise and their bakers are trained and um you know highly skilled their equipment is fairly old school actually so even though they are they employ over 100 people i think it's 180 people which is not a two two people in a shop a workshop sort of situation um there is a limit above which they won't go and compromise a compromise they won't make in in terms of the industrialization of those loaves and it it came this is something i mentioned in the piece but it was born into like reality for me in in a very kind of clear moment where one of the bakers took a loaf out um of the oven you know they're shoveling hundreds of these things in but took one out sort of tapped it on the bottom gave it sort of frowned showed his his colleague they both had a, a long look at it and and sort of shook their heads and put it back in and you know that's something that a machine would not be able to do and to just sort of realize that actually the atmospheric conditions are a bit different today so the temperatures are a bit different and you you know you don't want to burn a whole batch or, or vice versa and you did meet some of the quite interesting characters in the course of writing this piece didn't you yeah there was really passionate in, uh intriguing slightly eccentric people who kind of populate the world of bread I, I discovered um so chris young of the real bread campaign was this incredibly charismatic enthusiastic quite you know impassioned defender of artisan bread who you know is working i think he maybe has one colleague and it's part of another uh, sort of slightly slightly larger uh, ngo called sustain who are interested in sustainable food um and he was just a mind of of like absolutely phenomenal kind of detail on on every single aspect of of the fight to sort of um 
you know, get artisan bread recognised. Uh, and, and that actually ended up in Parliament um, last year with the Honest Crust Act. Uh, I can't believe they actually got away with calling it that. It didn't didn't get anywhere. It got 12, 12 MPs to back it. Um, he told me actually that they'd had a con- or he'd had a sort of private conversation with Michael Gove, who had sort of said, oh, we'll look at it again after Brexit. And he was reasonably optimistic that, that they could get some sort of recognition for legal recognition for the term sourdough, which would sort of help bolster the, the artisan industry. But yeah, just such a such a passionate guy. Um, someone who was, you know, up to speed with every single bit of sort of scientific research into how sourdough may or may not sort of improve your health. Um, lots of discussion of enzymes. You know, I've never never heard anyone talk with such sort of uh, flourishes about about enzymes and sort of you know the microbacteria and so on. Um, there was also the guy from Celtic Bakers, Toby Mitchell, who um, again were like ha- actually he hadn't come from a baking background, but um, had sort of adopted this new role as md with with such enthusiasm and he sort of really cared about both the bread but also i think i think other products as well that have this sort of uh are facing a difficult moment so beer for example um beer he thought and i think i can see the case here beer craft beer has entered into the mainstream in a way that artisan bread craft bread you might you might call it hasn't and and he was really interested in talking about sort of why that was and um and breaking through that kind of barrier essentially and getting artisan sourdough bread into sort of you know a more mainstream kind of diet in a way that craft beer already has done why do you think that is though because you're right it's on it's on tap in almost every pub now or you'll have cans in the fridge is it just because people think of having a drink as something that's to do with pleasure and a bit of a treat i think that's a really good theory actually yeah that, that, that makes there. sense to me now you say it i mean the, the fact <laughs> <laughs> let's go with that <laughs> no I, th- I think that makes sense doesn't it that the fact that you know times might be hard but we deserve a treat when we're going out to indulge ourselves but this this stuff bread is is actually just the most basic of staples so who cares um i mean it was something at that at that point was something that chris young brought up um because he was so annoyed with it you know the, the fact that people would um not think highly enough of the thing that you know we eat every day um and, and really wanted to change that that's part of what makes it so difficult to scale isn't it because yeah. if you do make your own bread and i don't know how many people listening to this will have tried making that own mm. bread sourdough or otherwise it's so specific on how humid is it is it mm. summer is it winter mm. is it all of these absolutely things. And, it, and and people tell me though i am I, well i'm an enthusiastic cook i've not tried making my own sourdough yet uh people tell me it takes practice too like you know it'll be like the seventh or eighth that i think for most people it's like yes i've nailed it now i, I find it. it works <laughs> out but yes but it requires an uh, you know that sort of human eye and an adaptation to, to those um, very unpredictable variables, essentially. There is a tension here, though, isn't there? And you kind of hinted at it earlier when you were talking about those little and Aldi 36p or thereabouts loaves between food snobbery. And you very rightly said, I don't I don't want to use disparaging words mm. about cheap food and between having standards. Um, I often think of something like mcdonald's where Mm. there might be people who are snobbish about it because it's you know cheap and crass and neon lighting and the people who go there aren't aren't the right sort of people um but equally you can dislike fast food chains because you want everybody to have you know well-cooked vegetables and less fat and salt so there is 
there's something difficult between wanting not to talk down about things that are cheap and mass produced mm. because it's it's snobbish and yet wanting quality for and mass production ma industrialization and mass production of food has given us many great breakthroughs in terms of um you know the improvement of people's general diet is something we shouldn't forget you know there is not uh, you know i always bristle at kind of the middle class um kind of artisan food culture when it when it harks back after a, an earlier time that didn't exist, you know, where, where we, um, uh, saying that there are absolutely things that are deficient in, in people's diets. And that absolutely correlates with um, with kind of uh, poverty and class and so on. Um, B. Wilson's latest book is really good on this stuff and talks about the fact that um, we're simultaneously becoming you know around the world we're eradicating or rather not eradicating we're improving the situation on on kind of world hunger and malnutrition um but at the same time people are becoming more unhealthy like we're you know things are polarizing to two extremes it seems paradoxical but we are simultaneously eating better and worse uh, than we ever have done and obesity is on the rise like in many parts of the world um in the west and, and elsewhere um I think Colombia, she said, was was actually sort of the worst in terms of just how badly and quickly um, the sort of general diet has decelerated. Um, so yes, taking it, bring it back to Britain and, and sort of and food snobbery, it's it's a really difficult tension. I always think of Jamie's school dinners with the um, and and you know furrowing my brow about it because <laughs> because because you know <laughs> I'm I'm not a fan of him, um, and yet I think that was a a bold intervention and attempt to do something that needed to be done which was to address the fact that so many young people so many children were, were eating so badly and better food education was clearly needed and better dietary education is clearly needed and continues to be so because there is, there is such dr drastic and awful kind of effects on all sorts of life outcomes in the very short term just your ability to concentrate in school um for from a bad diet but you know given that i bring that bring that up you know also need to mention the fact that there are an astonishing number of children going arriving at school hungry um that uh food bank usage you know it almost feels decadent to me as someone who's quite new to food writing to be writing about high-end food um while there are people visiting food banks in this country and it's it's a tension that i'm aware that the best food writers out there are aware of too and are sort of trying to address simultaneously that um you know is it decadent to even sort of debate the pros and cons of the best type of sourdough when some people are struggling to put any kind of food on the table um yeah irresolvable issues but ones that we all should be talking about i think dan hancock thank you very much for joining us thanks for having me flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to me, Stephanie Boland, and our guest, Dan Hancocks, and earlier in the show to Rebecca Liu, who also produced this week's episode. Remember, if you did enjoy the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It really does help other people find us. And until next week, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>